All right, so welcome to Thursdays at noon. Uh, we're just a little bit after, but it's okay. And if you got your Bible, we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, verses 4 through 8. So we're going to read that, and then we'll go ahead and start after we pray. So 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 8. And Peter writes this. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, priesthood, sorry, wow, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honors for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to. So we're going to pray and ask for God's help, and then we'll start. Uh, God, we thank you again uh, for the chance to have your word. Um, God, I ask that you would uh, speak to us. Um, we know that your word is living and active. Um, God, help us to uh, be convicted of heart. Uh, show us uh, your ways and how you work in the world. Show us the mystery of the gospel. Help us to hope um, in you and not in stuff. Um, I ask that you would help me to be uh, clear and accurate. Anything I would say that would be contrary, that you would um, cause to be forgotten and not remembered and not used. Um, God, we thank you for your son uh, who gave us life instead of death. In his name we pray. Amen. All right, so uh, if, you, if you've read the New Testament, just a brief look at it. Uh, you've noticed that even just the Old Testament as well, but especially you've noticed that in the whole Bible, uh, the things that God does seem to be mysterious. Uh, it's backwards to our thinking. The things he said doesn't really make sense. The way he goes about things seems to be strange and odd to us. And it's kind of one of the ways that God works. It's always backwards to our thinking. It's upside down. Uh, so if you think about the person of Christ, um, Jesus came as the Messiah, so as the Savior of the world. Um, and you'd expect a Savior to be a strong hero, like a Superman figure, uh, strong and beefy and maybe a big sword and uh, to slay the enemies. Um, but Jesus didn't come that way. The Messiah was not that figure. Um, he came not in power and wealth and didn't come to conquer, but he came in humility. He came in weakness and actually in poverty. And he came not to destroy, but to actually be killed, to be destroyed. It's very just counter our thinking. And so we look at a man who's dying on a cross as a criminal and we think, wow, that's our savior. And it's just, it's so odd to our thinking, and it goes against our understanding. Um, and yet in this, we see the greatness of God. Um, Jesus was rejected by men. Uh, people sought to entrap him. Uh, he was betrayed, beaten, falsely accused. Um, from the Jews to the non-Jews, who are called the Gentiles, to the Romans, um, and even to Judas, who's one of the 12 disciples, we see these men actively work against Jesus to entrap him and to destroy him. And we even have in the New Testament, Satan himself appears and is involved to thwart Jesus' plans, uh, to destroy God's purposes. Um, and what's interesting is, in all those things, and all the evil that takes place, and all the entrapment and seeking to destroy, those things actually don't thwart God's plan, but somehow in a weird way, they play into it. Uh, they fulfill what God actually planned beforehand. In some mysterious way, God's plans are fulfilled, even in the rebellion of man. And... In those things, there's typically two reactions. Uh, you, you either react and you are outstanding by God's goodness and how he does this, and you're just in awe at his power and his wisdom, or you reject it and you think it's foolishness and you think it's stupid. 
So we either worship or we reject. Those are kind of the two examples or re reactions that we have to the same thing. So we think about these Christians who Peter's writing to. Uh, they're under Emperor Nero, again, who is ruthless. He hates Christians, hates Christianity, hates the gospel, hates all that. And these men are getting attacked. They're suffering. Um, their friends are being thrown to animals, being burned alive. Um, and they would be thinking, what is happening? This is not right. We should not be being attacked. And for Peter to tell these men that God's purposes stand, that everything that is happening is not thwarting God's plan, but is playing into it. Uh, if you're a Christian in these times and you, and you understand this text and you get what Peter's saying, you almost feel invincible. That every attack against you doesn't thwart anything that God wants. Mm. It plays into it and reminds us that God moves in mysterious ways and all that actually worked in such a way to help us to know him and to understand the gospel and to, and to love him more. So in this text, Peter's going to show us a couple things. Um, he's going to show us the mystery in the rejection and attraction of Christ. Uh, number two, he's going to show us that we have security in Jesus. And number three, he's going to show us God's sovereignty or how God rules over human affairs and how people uh, work in the world. So we're going to see the rejection and attraction of Christ, the security we have in Christ, and how God works over human affairs. So in, in the New Testament, we see two reactions to Jesus. It's either embracement, like we said, or rejection. Um, if you talk to anybody about morality or religion or politics, you can usually get away with it. You usually, usually don't get a whole lot of uh, feedback or a whole lot of anger. Uh, typically, anybody will talk about Donald Trump and make fun of him. It's not really a problem. But anytime you mention Christianity or the Bible's stance on something or the person of Jesus, uh, there's very little agreement. There's usually rejection or you get made fun of or it, it becomes less serious all of a sudden. Oh, whatever. You want to talk about religion. That's typically the common reaction. Um, but then with others, if you do the same thing and you talk about Jesus and you mention what he came to do, there's this wonder or I, I never thought about that. You know, there's not a rejection. There's like a weird, almost like a welcoming stance to it. And it's, it's kind of a give or take. You really don't know. And in first... In, uh, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, Peter starts off with this. He says, as you come to him. So he's talking about Christ. So Christians are invited to come to God's word to see God's son. Come to him. As you come to him. So it's an active idea that Christians are always coming to Jesus. We're always looking at him. We're coming to get closer to him, to observe him, to see his ways. And what's cool is in God's word, God draws you to see him. So there's your beckon to come and God draws. So there's this two-way street of this. If you look at the end of verse 3, it's relevant if you look at it. Uh, Peter just said this, If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good as you come to him. So if you've seen that Jesus is good and you understand how beautiful and attractive he is, you're going to come to him. And that's the response that Peter is asking for and is looking for. Is if you've seen him, that he is good, you will continue to come to him. Um, it, it's your nature. You want to see him. So Christians are called to go to Jesus. Uh, he is our never-ending fountain of life-giving water. Uh, he sustains us, he supplies us, and he satisfies all who come to him. Uh, a familiar text in Isaiah 55 says this, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. This, this, is, the, this is the good part. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. So we're invited to come to God, and not with anything we have, just ourselves. You don't have to buy his grace, you don't have to earn it. You don't have to be a certain style or attitude of person. You just come and you drink free of the gospel. 
And the same gospel that satisfies some causes others to mock it. It's it's a two-handed sword there. If you look at verse 4 again, the second half, it says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. So at the same time in that verse, there's a simultaneous coming to Jesus and rejection of Jesus. And again, that's how how the world works. Either you embrace him or you reject him. If you notice, he's called the living stone uh, because Jesus is the foundation. He's the stone. He's the solid ground uh, for all Christian hope and standing with God. Uh, He's the foundation of the church and all the doctrine the Bible holds. And he's called the living stone because he's existed from all eternity. He didn't come to live. He has been living. So Jesus is eternal. He's our eternal hope, our eternal standing with God. That's what that language means. So... And we see that if you're a Christian, that's precious to you. Uh, he is your foundation. He's your hope. And He ever stands and remains that way. Uh, so what's sweet to us is foolishness to others. So why does Peter remind us of this rejection? Because this doesn't really give me hope. Well, people reject the gospel. How is that good news? Or how is it helpful to me to understand? So if you look at verse 5. You yourselves, like living stones. So Peter just said Jesus is the living stone. He's the living stone. And now, who's been rejected by man. And now Peter says, you yourselves like this. So like living stones. So Jesus was the author of life, who was rejected by man. And we ourselves are like him, like a living stone. We're following in his steps. So Peter's trying to point a picture. This isn't foreign to God. This isn't strange. This is the ways of God. It doesn't make any sense to us. It's, it's weird at face value. But we're following the ways of God. And what's beautiful is Jesus was scorned and suffered greatly. And we see that in our sufferings, we actually meet Jesus closer in those circumstances. Again, it doesn't make any sense. We think you should know Christ better in a happy situation when there's nothing wrong. But in this, Peter's saying, well, you yourselves are following him. You come to him in this. In your suffering, you meet Jesus more deeply. He becomes sweeter. He seems more precious to you. If you look at verse 4b, so go back to verse 4 he says that Jesus was rejected by man, but chosen and precious in the sight of God. And so again, he was hated by man, but loved by God, rejected by men, accepted by God. And again, in verse 5, you yourselves are like living stones. So the world may think little of you. Uh, they may hate you. They may mock you. But you are chosen and precious to God like a living stone, just like Christ is. That's how you were viewed if you're a Christian. What good news is that for suffering? That God's not against you. He's infinitely for you in His Son. And you think about it again. This letter is to elect exiles. So those chosen in God who are scattered abroad, right? Uh, we see that God has purposed us. He's not just standing back and waiting. He has come to us in Christ. And it, it, there, there's this weird comfort in knowing this. That if you're a Christian, you're rejected by God but chosen. Or you're, you're rejected by a man but chosen by God. It's a weird comfort to know that. If you're doing it right, that should be happening. You should be. Yeah, people should like you. I think that's good. You should be kind and, and helpful and gracious. But you shouldn't be completely accepted because you're chosen by God. There's this weird comfort of rejection and exception. It's weird how that works as a Christian. So we feel this pleasure in our hearts, especially in our pains, that we feel God's happy embrace. It's weird how that is. So when the dark clouds of suffering come over us and pain and fear strike us, behind the clouds there's always this big sun is the smiling Son of God who looks down upon you. So in suffering, we have the smiling Son of God behind us when the clouds are around us. Look at verse 5 again. Peter goes to some more language that's peculiar to us. He says, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built 
up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. So there's a lot of stuff in there. So again, think about living stones. Think about actual rocks, right? You build things with, with stones. This is the idea, this is the language. He says that as a spiritual house, as a holy priesthood to offer sacrifices to God. So you, you, have, you have to go back to the Old Testament. Peter's a Jew, so Peter knows his Old Testament well. He knows his Bible. He's going back to this language. So here's one verse that helps to understand what he's saying. So to build the Old Testament, you can't just get ran- to, to build the Old Testament temple. You can't just get random rocks. You can't just go out and find, hey, here's a nice rock. God has a specific way to do it, and it has to be a certain way to illustrate the importance of what this is. So in the Old Testament, you would go to the quarry, and you would cut and smooth certain stones. And here's a verse that, uh, if you think about it, this is what Peter's alluding to. 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 7, here's what it says. When the house, or the temple, was built, so spiritual house, temple, same language, was built, and get these rocks, and they would do all the hard stuff there. They would chisel the rocks, they would break them down, they would shape them, all this loud noise and nonsense. Then they would bring them into the temple and just stack them real quietly and just walk away. Go the next one. Loud outside and peaceful inside. And what's neat is that's kind of how God has chosen us as his temple, as his stones. We, we've been chosen out of this loud area, out of the world, which is crazy, it's dark, it's a quarry, it's not, it's not safe, it's not gentle. God has chosen you, and He fashioned you out there, and He brings you in gently, and places you in His spiritual house. God delights in you that way. He, he took His time, He gently constructs us to be His spiritual house, to be a temple. So God's building His church with people, so... Uh, collectively, all Christians are the spiritual house of God. We are God's temple. We are where God dwells with us, where we meet God. We are like living stones built on the living stone. So He's our foundation. We're built on Him and built in union with Him. So then you have those who have been rejected by God, or rejected by man, excuse me, but chosen by God for a purpose, as a function. So you are collectively God's temple, but individually, Peter says in verse 5, that we are like living stones to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So collectively we're a temple, but individually we're a priest. And again, if you go back to the Old Testament language, uh, the temples had priests, so men who were set apart to be holy, who only they could go to God, only they were allowed to commune with God, to speak with God, to have the sins taken care of, to confess sins of the people. Uh, they were the only ones allowed to do that. Now the New Testament, because of what Christ has done, and we stand on His work, we are now like priests to God. We are able to go to God, to have communion with Him, to speak to God, to have our sins taken care of. We don't need someone to do it for us. We go to God on the work of Christ. Amen. So what Jesus has done, He is the living stone of our foundation, to how God comes to us, and He is our, he is our foundation of a high priest, of how we are high priest to God. So Jesus, all of His work is foundational to what we do as a Christian. All of it matters. All of it is important. All of it is how we meet and, and commune with God. And because of that, we can offer it, uh, Peter says, spiritual sacrifices. So we don't kill animals in a church, and we don't af- offer animals to God, but it's a spiritual sacrifice. So it's things that are not necessarily tangible. So think of uh, God will now accept, gladly accept, the obedience, the will, the self, our thanksgiving and our praises as a Christian. So when you praise God, and you thank God, and you sing to Him, and you Give him your obedience. God doesn't see it as filthy because of your sin. He sees it as good because of his son's work on your behalf. So now God gladly accepts everything you offer him. And to us it seems like a, it's a lot to offer to God in our wills and ourselves. And God knows that. So it doesn't seem small 
So everything you offer to God in the Christian life is important because it's, it's on the work of Christ. So your thanksgivings, your praise you give to God, when you say no to sin and treasure God, that's a big deal because God now accepts that as beautiful. Not as sick as it was because of our sin. And what's weird is the same message that Peter just took, the same gospel, the same good news, the same work of Christ, it has been said this, the same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. And I've heard it said the same lock that opens the door, or the same key that opens the door sets the lock. So Jesus was rejected by man, but chosen with God. And if you're a Christian, that's how it is with you. You've been rejected by man, but in God's sight you're chosen and precious. And the same living stone that brings repentance brings refusal. So God works in mysterious ways. We don't know how that works. So here's kind of the question. This is the mystery. To us, Jesus is the power of God. He is, we want him. We see him as valuable. We'll, we'll give up anything for him. But others don't. People see him as, you just throw him aside. He's just like any other man. He's just a good teacher. He's just helpful. Some see that, some don't. So have you ever worried about that? Have you ever thought, maybe, maybe I got this wrong. I mean, my professor doesn't believe that Jesus is God, right? Or my friends don't, or those who are popular don't believe it. So can we have security in Christ? Can we, can we hope in Jesus and not be put to shame? Is there anything we can hope in? So God sent his son to be the foundation for all Christian life. Uh, doctrine in the church. As a Christian, you filter everything through God's Word. Not just filter, but you actually reject anything that's contrary to it. So all of Christianity stands or falls on the person of Christ, as we just covered. And oftentimes those views are very unpopular in the world. They're not exactly the favorites. Uh, the Christian stance on abortion, or the Christian stance on marriage, they're, they're not favorited, they're actually rejected. And Peter told us in chapter 1, he, he went through all this long expanse to tell us that the blood of Christ has cleansed us from all sin, his resurrection has secured us a hope that he has been the theme of the prophet since before uh, he came on, on board on, on the land. His blood carries more value than all things. And before the foundation of the world, Jesus existed and was our, our purpose to get us to God by his life. And Jesus himself says this, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them is like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. So when suffering comes and doubt comes, Jesus says, if you want to be wise, build it on what I said. So Jesus makes it a huge claim by saying, my words carry more worth than anything else. Everything I said, if you base it on this, you're wise. The storms won't take you. It's, it's a solid rock. So this is, this is a big thing, Jesus is saying. Peter makes all his claims about what Christ has done. Jesus says that his claims are more true and valuable than anything else. If you look at chapter 1, verse 25, he quotes the Old Testament saying that this is the gospel. The word of God stands forever. So there's a lot of emphasis on being a Christian. So is it worth it? Can we trust it? Is there hope? Look at verse 6. This might be one of the most, I think, powerful statements in the entire New Testament, in my opinion. Look at verse 6. There's just the first few words. For it stands in Scripture. Your hope is standing in Scripture. It's not wavering. It's not just there. It's not going to be changed by the tide or changed by popularity it stands i it just seems like a thundering statement to me it stands in scripture so what's your assurance it stands in the text right god's word is authoritative it's powerful according to hebrews chapter 4 it's living and active like like anything else it's unusual it's different it stands out god's word has stood the test of time and scrutiny and skepticism it proves to be archaeologically on point. It actually gives us more history than we actually knew of, of the, the Old Testament times. We don't, we don't understand it until we read the Bible. 
It's historically reliable, it's scientifically sharp, and it continues to predict prophecy over and over and over again. God's word stands firm, so our hope stands in that hope. Charles Spurgeon said this, Scripture is like defending a lion. Whoever heard of defending a lion? Just turn it loose and it will defend itself. So God's word stands and we stand on it. That is our only hope. This is our only word. This is our only shot. It's God's word. We stand on it and that's where we meet God and we see his son. So Peter says that and then in verse 6 he continues by quoting more of scripture to back up scriptures. Here's, here's what he says. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So Peter again quotes the prophet Isaiah for us to look back to the authority of Scripture in Scripture. So he says, I placed in Zion, it's kind of a strange word, we don't usually use that word, I think of the city of Jerusalem, okay, from, like, from, a different, from a different perspective. For a New Testament reasoning, think of heaven, the heavenly Jerusalem, Zion, that's kind of the way we think about it. So God chose to place in Jerusalem a chosen and precious stone. We just realized that's Christ, we just covered that. And like a good pastor, Peter points us back to God's word to understand the meaning of God's word. Jesus called the cornerstone or the chief stone, the same idea. Um, he, he is what it sounds like. He's the cornerstone. So what's a cornerstone? Well, it's, it's the first stone you place to, to build a building. You've you got to start somewhere. You start in the corner. And why that is? Because the cornerstones carry a lot of weight. They're bigger. And they actually are kind of the, the measure which you use to measure up the rest of the building. So if you think of a corner... You start going two directions from a corner. So a cornerstone is crucial. It's the foundation. It's where everything else falls into place after the cornerstone. So Jesus, who is God's chosen stone, his precious son, is the foundation, the beginning, and measure of everything that exists. This is a huge statement in the Bible. Jesus, if it doesn't line up with him, you reject it. So Christian, this is helpful for you to understand just for discerning your worldview or where you stand and believe things. If it doesn't line up with the cornerstone, you can reject it, and it's okay. So this is assurance for us as well. So again, he is the chosen cornerstone. He is precious to God. He is the measure of all things. And verse 6 is a beautiful verse just to think about for the rest of your life. Look what it says at the very end. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Constantly we see people, things they say... They are proved false, and they feel, oh, man, I blew it. You know, we, we hope in things, and they fail. Well, if I get this raised, my family will be okay. And it happens, and your family's not okay. Your marriage tanks because you're hoping in your wife to be better than you are, your husband to be better than you are, and your marriage tanks. We hope in all these things, and we're, we're put to shame. We feel, like, we feel like a loser. Man, I, I blew it again, right? And look what Peter said. If you hover hopes in this chosen cornerstone, this foundation, this measure of all things, this thing that's chosen by God, you will never be put to shame. Never. Yes, people in the world may shame you. Yes, they will poke fun at you. If Peter's saying is ultimately in eternity, you have nothing to worry about. God chose it. If you, if you rest on it, you're secure. You're secure as the foundation. You have nothing to worry about as a Christian. So think about these people who are suffering I will never be put to shame. Never. People can attack us. People can mock us. They can kill our friends. But in Christ, we will never be ashamed. That is such good news to people who are suffering. That in Christ, your hope is not in vain. It's not empty. It's not random. It is solid. It's in the foundation. It's secure. So Jesus is a safe place for our souls. We have security in Christ. 
He won't bring regret or foolishness. So verse 4, Peter says, come to Jesus, come to him. He's saying because he is a firm foundation, you will not be put to shame. So as a Christian, remember to go to him, to trust in him. The words that Jesus said, it is finished, that's what we bank on. We will not be put to shame. Our sins are taken away. They're removed from us. We stand on the work of Christ. Nothing can separate us from him. If he is for us, who can be against us? All things work together for those who are in Christ. He died for your sins. He took away the penalty that was against us because of our sin. He took it away in the burial, and he raised to life to give us life. So Christians are the only ones who have hope past the grave. Our life lives past death. Those who reject him, though, are under God's judgment. So this is the good news, is that our hope endures, according to chapter 1, forever and ever. It remains, it never washes. But what's scary is, as a Christian, there are those who actively seek to be against you. Christians aren't liked. They're not favored in the ballot box. They're mocked openly. Um, and in this age where Peter wrote this, there was, there was murder. There was people being burned alive. There were beheadings. There were... Lions being fed daily because of, by Christian meat. So how about those who actively scheme against us? How about those who hate the gospel? How about those professors who hate Jesus? How about those parents who are against church? How about those friends who are atheistic? What, what do you do? I, it, you're being attacked. What's your, what's your hope? What's your stance on this? And what's good is God reveals this to us. So we've learned that there is rejection and acceptance in Christ. It happens at the same time, but by different people. Those who hope in Christ, their hope is secure. It is rock steady, we could say. It is secure. It is, it's a foundation. Now we're going to see that God moves in such a way that even human affairs don't stop this. They don't, they don't stop God's plans. They don't stop the hope. They actually somehow are woven into it. So in verse 7, we read this. So the honor... The honor of trusting in Christ, the joy of trusting in Christ, is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So we read that those who came, who believe in Christ, if you place your trust in Christ, you have eternal life. It is yours. It is never going to fade. And God has shown that to you by His grace, so we have no reason to brag in that. Yes, you have believed, but it's because God has chosen you as he chose his precious stone. So we have no reason to boast or to brag in our belief, but to trust in the God who called us. So Christian, you, you should understand that just as God has caused you to be born again, he has caused you to be a living stone, to be a priesthood under his son. And for those who are not in Christ, who don't see his goodness, you're invited to come, to come see Jesus, see how good he is. Come see this rock. Uh, Peter says, to come taste and see. God does not and will not refuse those who come. We just read that in verse 7. He says, in, I'm sorry, in verse uh, um, 6, and those who believe in him will not be put to shame. Come believe in Christ. There, there's nothing stopping you. Come, come see him. So we're called to see, we're called to believe. And in verse 7 and 8, we read this. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to. And there's a lot in this. So again, we've covered that Jesus is the cornerstone, and now he's called the stone of stumbling and the rock of offense. So in the attempts to thwart or ruin Jesus, think about all the New Testament. You have Judas, you have the Pharisees, you have the Gentiles. With Pilate, with all these men, 
they cease to cause Jesus to be who he is. They say, hey, we're going to go against him. We're going to seek We're going to seek him out and destroy him. And what's silly is it didn't do anything at all. It actually got him to where he wanted to be. So we see that in the active ways to thwart Christ, it actually caused him to be what he was determined to be. And men stumble over this teaching. So the, the stumbling stone, the rock of offense, the things that Jesus said cause us to trip over. It causes us to, to fall into ruin, to say, I don't like this teaching. I don't, I don't understand this. It causes us to, to back off, to, to reject. Um, we fall over what Jesus has said and done. But look at verse 8. This is the verse that is, that is our hope. This is verse gives hope to the Christian. We see God's freedom in how he works out the world. And they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to. So we read this text and we think, wow, that's a lot. And it is a lot. This is a deep text, but it's good for us to see. So all this stumbling over Christ, all the rejection, all the active ways to scheme against him and to fight him, they somehow, in a mysterious way, fulfill God's eternal plan. It's a mystery for us to understand this. Their disobedience is what they're destined to do. So we see that they disobey, they reject God, they reject Christ, but they're only doing what God has planned for them to do. There's no, there's no rogue humanity taking over God's purposes. God's not standing and shaking his head and scratching his neck. Well, what should I do next? These are fulfilling God's purposes. God is not stopped. He is over all evil. So in all the attempts to keep the gospel from spreading in the Middle East, all the attempts to kill Christians in Turkey, and all the hopes to put into Christianity and their voice here in North America are being governed by God. There's no rogue attacks. There's no secret thing that God's not aware of. They're actually fulfilling God's purposes. God holds the eternity and destiny of every creature in his hand. And he rules well. So again, think about these Christians who are being attacked. You have Nero. You have ruthless killings. You have fear. You have oppression. And if you're a Christian in these times, what are you thinking? Nero's just a puppet. He can't stop us. So the, this doctrine, this good news of God's sovereignty and God's ruling with people, it should make you feel invincible as a Christian. You have nothing to worry about. Yeah, people are scary. Men are evil. Satan is violent. But he's just a puppet. He, he can't stop God's plans. He actually fulfills them. So we should have the security to know that in these things, God's purposes stand. They don't stop, they stand. His son rules the world and he rules the hearts of men. So all the attempt today to destroy Christianity are doing what was written to them to do. Somehow God works in this way. It's a mystery to us. We don't get to stand and judge. We get to stand and watch. We should be humbled by this. It should bring us great hope and joy to see God working for you always. He's never stopping. So here, here's the mystery. The free acts of man... And the attempts of Satan to thwart God's plans, accomplish God's will. We see this in, in the gospel accounts. We see this in Acts, in Romans, in Ephesians, in First and Second Thessalonians. We see this in the book of Revelation. But I want to go to one verse that I think is helpful and a good one to lay across your life and to lay across all things that happen. So in the book of Genesis, as we end here, uh, we see the man Joseph who was betrayed by his brothers. He was sold into slavery. He was falsely accused, thrown unjustly into prison, forgotten by many, and then he became the vice president of Egypt, all in a matter of years and years and years. It was all evil that was done to him. It was not fair. It was wrong. It was cruel. And when Joseph sees his brothers again, as he's the vice president of Egypt, he sees his brothers and they say, hey, Joseph, we're sorry. 
and that they try to muster up this, this story to make, it, to make Joseph be less cruel or to seem merciful. And Joseph says these amazing words in, 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 the, in the Old Testament. Here's what it says. Genesis 50, verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive. So what's interesting is what was meant for evil, what's, what's meant for evil against you, uh, to harm you, to attack you when suffering is meant against you. For these Christians, when Nero is meant against them, somehow in some mysterious way, God means this in the same way, but for good. They, they fulfill God's plan. They don't stop God's will. They are in it. And for Christians who are suffering and in pain, this is good news for us. That everything that happens that seems to be against us is working for us. Nothing stands in our way, but God uses it in such a way to actually promote His purpose for us. They do as they were destined to do. What is meant for evil is meant for good in God's sight. Everything serves God's purposes and causes our highest worship of Him. So Christian, all that God is doing in the world, Peter wants us to know these three things. That He has invited you to see Jesus. Some reject, but you are invited to see Him. There's no other security in the globe that is equal to the hope we have in Christ and in His Scriptures. And in all attempts to thwart the plan of God, to attack you, to destroy Christianity, they're only doing as they're destined to do. God rules all things for the sake of His praise and for His glory. And we delight in that. So Christian, take heart. God will keep you, and He will accomplish all that He pleases. Let's pray. God, we thank You for Your Word, which stands firm. We think for the hope that we have in your Son who was revealed to us in your Word. God, help us to, to hope in what you are doing. God, you are not idle. You're not asleep. You are working. Give us hope. Give us security in that. Help us to trust that you are good. God, in times of suffering, help us not to run from you, to run to you. Uh, to remember that we draw closer to be more like your Son in suffering. That we see his glory more in it. God, help us to trust you. We thank you for your word. Help us to read it. Help us to learn it and to love it. God, you are good. You are kind. We thank you for your son who has given us life instead of death. In his name we pray. Amen.